Well, in 1965, music changed. With one song and one artist, music would never be the same again. That was the the year that James Brown would enter into the music world. Now, for our older generation, you know who James Brown is. How many remember James Brown? Let's see, show of hands. In the first service, a teenage individual told me, yeah, I didn't know him, but he was in Rocky IV. Yes, James Brown is the guy that sings before the real big fight between Apollo Creed and Dolph Lundgren, but our younger generation doesn't know the great style and the great music James Brown brought, and I thought you might need a little wake-me-up this morning, so here's this. Everybody does that, right? They all, I don't even know if I'm doing it right. I should ask Josh, but it seems like he's doing this. I don't know what it is. Yeah, we're going to do it again. We can do this all day long. In 1965, he introduced the world to funk. And he said, it ain't no drag. Papa's got a brand new bag. And with that, a new music, a new style, with a focus on the downbeat, with a new set of rhythm and blues, James Brown brought a new style of music to the world. And he tells the story in that song through its lyrics that an old man was about to come onto the dance floor. And in this new style of music, he was going to push away all that he knew, all of his traditions, all of the old way of doing things. And he was going to, if you will, using an old phrase, cut a rug in a new way. And the lyrics were to tell a more broader story. Reading an article that was about the song, it said that it wasn't just about music, but what James Brown was wanting was people to be introduced to a new way of life, to not just be stuck in the old, but to move to the new. And in doing so, as scary, as difficult, as awkward it may feel in the beginning steps of it, that there's great joy There's great um, opportunity when we cast off the old and we put on the new. Now, why in the world would Pastor Tim bring in James Brown on a Sunday morning? Because Hebrews is written as a reminder to the people that the old is gone and the new has come. Writing to a group of uh, New Testament Jewish believers who had given up on the law of Moses, who had given up on all the rituals and and regulations that the Old Testament law had, they had come to find something new. They had found Jesus. And in finding Jesus, they had experienced new life in him. They had experienced a new way of living life. Now here is the problem. Just as when you start singing a new song or a new style of music, there will be people from the old who will say, you can't do it that way. And what happened was, is these New Testament Jewish believers who had fallen in love with Jesus, who were experiencing this new bag that God had revealed in his son, Jesus Christ, they started getting pushback. They started being persecuted for loving Jesus. And they were tempted to give up on the new thing that God had done to put themselves back in the old thing, to go to the old and stodgy way of living under the law with all of its rules and regulations. But the writer of Hebrews has said over and over again, 
to give up on this new thing that is found in the person and work of Jesus would be the most foolish thing any Christ follower could do. And so from chapter one, verse one, he has told us Jesus is better than anything that we can come into contact with with regards to the Old Testament law. Jesus is better than the patriarchs. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the high priest of the Aaron's, of Aaron's priesthood. Jesus is better again and again and again. And what we learn in Hebrews chapter seven, uh, chapter seven, first of all, is that Jesus is the great high priest forever. He's the first, he's the last, he's the everything when it comes to the work of high priest. And Hebrews chapter 7 verse 12 tells us that with a new high priest comes a new law. And so now Jesus, who is this great high priest forever, is going to usher his people, the people of God, into a new contract, a new covenant. Jesus is going to bring, as the law did, a contract between God and man. But Jesus is going to do what the law couldn't do. Jesus is going to bring God and man together, listen to me, forever. And that there was nothing that was going to separate us when we found Christ. Nothing was going to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And so Hebrews chapter 8 is all about this new thing, this new bag that God has. We call it the new covenant. And what he says in chapter 8, verse 1, is in essence the thesis statement for the entire book. Notice what he says. Now the point in what we are saying is this. This is an important Sunday for you to be here. Because in this message, you are going to hear the gist of the book of Hebrews. That because Jesus has come, you and I have unfettered access to God, no longer worrying about our sin. That was not always the case. For hundreds of years, the, the people of God lived under the law. Well, what did that look like? What was that all about? Notice a couple things about the law. To understand what we have in the new covenant, we've got to look back at the old covenant. And so what do we need to know? The law of Moses, which was instituted on Mount Sinai, which is contained in the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are 613 laws for the people of God to follow. They involve worshiping God, interacting with God. They involve interacting with one another, both in public life and in private life. They involve the family relationship. They involve the commerce relationship. They involve every element of life, even how we are to relate to strangers and foreigners. Now, these 613 laws had a purpose. They weren't just there to be there. They had a purpose. So write this somewhere down because this is helpful for us to remember. The Jewish people needed the law for three things. Number one, to give a glimpse into God's holiness. And so we have these 613 laws. These 613 laws would show us all the things that we would need to do if we wanted to be holy like God. It was also then to restrain sin. And so these 613 laws or rules would keep an individual from doing what God said they ought not to be doing. So let's give an example. The, the Bible says in the law, don't steal. 
Well, what would restrain, other than God saying don't do it, that's important. The God of the universe says, I don't want you to live this way. The law came with punishments. And so if you stole, here's what was going to happen. And so you would think twice before stealing. You would think twice before speaking ill or bearing false witness of somebody. You would think twice before you uh, treated God in a casual way. All of these laws came with a punishment. And so it would curtail people's outward sinfulness. Third, it would bring temporal forgiveness for sin. Every year you would bring an offering and you'd say, hey, I broke uh, one or two or 612 or 613 of the laws. And I know that I can't stand in the presence of God. I know I can't have a right relationship with God. I know that my life and my family and my nation and my crops or my flock will not be blessed by God until I make right with God. And so on the day of of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, you would bring an offering to the Lord and it would cover your sin for the entirety of that year. But you'd have to do it again and again and again. And the problem was, is you were in this perpetual state of getting back to square one. Not moving, not being able to grow, not enjoying the fellowship, but sitting in the rules and regulations that were there. Now, in those three ways, the law accomplished much. It accomplished its purpose. But I want you to know that the text has told us over and over again that the law was powerless, That is, that it could not accomplish what we needed. In Hebrews chapter 7, it said, the law made no one perfect. That's what we needed, but the law couldn't do it. And so the law, in many ways, was useless because it didn't accomplish what it needed. It was called weak because it didn't have the power to make us right with God. In fact, in many ways, the law kept us at arm's length away from a holy God. And so it didn't accomplish what it needed to. It did not save us from our sins. Third, the purpose of the law, which proved the powerless of the law, led to a perversion of the law. During the days of Jesus, now it was happening in the Old Testament, but especially during the days of Jesus, Jesus, all of his arguments and all of his quarrels with the chief priests and religious leaders of the day had to do with they had bought into a perversion of the law that was unhelpful for the people of God. What they had said is that the way you get to God is by getting all of the laws right. Not only those laws, but now thousands of other laws that surrounded the 613. This would cause a Pharisee to stand up and pray, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like all of these other people. Remember that passage in the scripture? No grace, no mercy, I'm better than they are. I'm more holy than they are. That's what legalism does. That's what the law does. You start comparing yourself with one another. Well, I'm sure glad I'm not like him. I'm sure glad I'm better than her. And so we begin to do that. It also does where we begin to think, well, I'll never be holy because I'm not like them and I'm not like her. And it creates this bondage. This is why uh, Jesus said that the um, Pharisees were whitewashed tombs because they were clean on the outside, but the problem was is the law was always external. We'll talk about this in a moment, but always external. 
And so if you could look good, then the perversion of the law said you were fine. Now here's the problem. They had made the law everything. Jesus said in John 5, 39, you search the law in thinking you will find eternal life. That's the perversion. Now you say, well, I'm not a Jewish individual. I don't live under the law. But you know what? We create our own law. We create our own rules. In your religion and in my religion, outside of Christ, we've got all different kinds of rules and regulations we've created. And we say, if we do these things, we will find eternal life. Every major religion outside of Christianity is about you attaining eternal life on your own. And so this is nothing new under the sun. There's a perversion that we can get to God on our own. But he says, listen, the law, it was written so it would reveal me, he says in John 5, 39. It was written to tell about me. And so the prophets have been pointing this way. The Old Testament scriptures have pointed this way, and we'll see it because he quotes Jeremiah 31 in our text this morning. And what it's saying is there always has been and there always was going to be a new covenant. God had a brand new bag. And it involved the person of Jesus Christ being our high priest forever. That is the gist of Hebrews. Now in Hebrews chapter 8, he wants to show you that because Jesus is this great high priest, the new contract that he brings man to God with brings them together, that it's way better than the old way. And he's gonna do it in four ways. Notice in Jesus, write these down. In Jesus, God replaces the old with the new, first of all, by replacing that which was inferior with something that is superior. Notice verses two through six. He says the following. He says, we have such a high priest, end of verse one, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to offer something. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. But since there are high priests who offer gifts according to the law, but they serve as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry, notice the words, that are much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for the second. Let's start with the bottom and move up. The reason why Jesus came was the old law was never going to take care of it. It was inferior. Well, how was it inferior? The text tells us the inferiority of the law was based on the high priest who mediated that law. Well, what makes Jesus better? Notice a couple things, write these somewhere down. Number one, Jesus is superior because he sits at a superior seat. Notice verse one, he is seated at the right hand of the Father in majesty, a place of honor and authority. Now, 
The Old Testament priests, and we've talked about this, the Old Testament priests, when they went into the Holy of Holies, they never sat down. Why? Because they were working. They were doing what they needed to do. They got in, they accomplished what they were told to do, and then they left. Jesus, because he is the perfect and sinless high priest, enters the Holy of Holies since he's already accomplished the work of redeeming people back to himself, he sits down. He sits down in the place of greatest honor. No high priest would ever be allowed to sit in the Holy of Holies, let alone sit at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. He has this superior seat. Notice the text goes on, there's a superior service. Now the service says that, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going a little ahead of myself. Superior sanctuary, let's start there first. Superior sanctuary, verse two. It says that Jesus resides in a true tent. What are we talking about here? The Jewish people would have understood it. For many years, from Moses to David, the people of God worshiped the presence of God in a tent. Now the tent was given under great care by God to Moses. And God says in the text here that he told Moses to build it exactly as he told him to. Everything was to be just as God said. But we need to recognize that it was made with human hands. The second Moses was the one who started building it, it lost some of its flair. Jesus was not made. Jesus is God, and he is the presence of God. He is the deity of God in bodily form. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. The sanctuary, the abode where Jesus is, is the abode of God. Not some copy, not some shadow, not some man-made representation of what we see in heaven. He is the all in all. He is all that God intended it to be. Third, we see a superior service. Now it talks about the priest in uh, verses uh, two and three. And it says they're supposed to give and they're supposed to serve and, and all of that. And the writer says that Jesus is superior because he does something that doesn't need to be done over and over again. Years ago, my mom and dad owned a grocery store. And in the latter years of them owning the grocery store, I was coming into being a teenager and I was given the job of mopping the floor. Well, in the grocery store, especially during the days of winter, you would have to mop the floor while the grocery store was open. How many ever had to do that, right? And I would mop the floor and what would happen as I was mopping the floor? Someone would come in and trash the floor. It was the worst job in the world because as soon as you made something clean, it got dirty again. That is the old law. As soon as you got clean, you got dirty again. And you lived in this. So it's like every time I get one step ahead, I fall two steps behind. Not so with Jesus. Every year the high priest would go in. Here we go again. We're going to ask for forgiveness of sins. And as soon as I leave this place, the cleanliness that I came and sought God for, the people will have dirtied already. But the text tells us in chapter 7 that Jesus Christ saved us once and for all. So Jesus cleaned the floor and nobody ever dirtied it again. 
Jesus made it in such a way that our feet and our bodies and our minds and our hearts would never be contaminated by sin again. And the reason, or the way he does it is he is saving us again and again and again. He's interceding on our behalf so that we who have had a work started in us, he says we can be confident that we'll see it to completion. So he has this superior seat. He has a superior sanctuary. He has a superior service. That's what makes Jesus superior to the law of Moses. Now notice the second thing God does. In Christ, God replaces the external with the internal. 613 laws, and all of them had to do with don't do this, don't do that. Well, what were the don't do's? Don't do physical things. Don't speak wrongly. Um, Don't use your body in a wrong way. Don't physically harm or hurt people. Don't physically take things from people. But what the law could not address was what was going on in the mind. The law couldn't deal with what was going on in the heart. So one of the most impressive passages of Scripture is Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount. And remember what Jesus does? He starts point by point saying to the people, you've heard it said, the law has said this. So he starts with, the law has said, uh, do not commit adultery. All of them say amen, or whatever they would have said in Jewish, right? Amen, all right? Not a woman, by the way. Amen, okay? Okay, now you're awake. Now we're here, okay? But Jesus says, But I tell you, here's the new covenant. It isn't just committing adultery in the physical act. If a man and and or woman looks to another individual in a lustful way, they have committed adultery where? In their hearts. Do not commit murder, he says. That's the external. That's what the law said. Do not kill people with your bare hands or physically kill them. But I tell you, here's the new covenant. Here's the internal You think wrong thoughts or murderous thoughts about your brother or sister. You've committed murder in your heart. Do you see how God is merging the external in Christ to the internal? This is way bigger. This is way more holistic. And what Jesus is doing is he's reminding us, Gentiles under the new covenant, that we can't just go through the motions, people. We can't just go through the motions. And some of you, and I'm going to speak very specifically to a group of people, some of you, you are the righteous looking people who are rotten to the core. Now here's the problem. I'm going to separate myself from you because I usually sin outwardly. I just, it just, it's there, okay? And one of the things I've loved about my wife was my wife was a rule follower, before she came to know Christ. She was a moral young lady. She, she did everything by the book. And I had to remind her that the Bible says just because you get it all done and look all good on the outside, you got problems with the in. See, I call myself a Romans 1 sinner. Take a look at Romans 1. You'll see, man, they, a lot of rebellion, a lot of outward sin. But we never read Romans 2. And Romans 2 is written to you who think, you know what, I'm better than they are. I don't, I don't do those things. You'll never see me do anything like that, but you're thinking it or you're wanting it in your heart. That's where Jesus condemns the Pharisees 
And he says, you guys look so good on the outside, but you're dead inside. This is the difference between the old covenant and the new. And we need to grab a hold of this and and recognize that here's a problem. God demands our whole allegiance to him, both in word and deed and thought and action. All of it. Now, what he's going to tell us is, later here in the text, he's going to say, the reason why you're now held accountable for your inward thoughts and thinking is because I'm going to do a heart exchange. Jeremiah 31, notice in verse 8 through 12, he says the following. For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, this is Jeremiah speaking, that I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand uh, and took them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, after the old covenant. Here's the new thing I'm going to do, he says. I will put my law into their minds, and I will write their, uh, my law on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, And I will remember their sins no more. Now let's stop there. Jesus says it's a heart issue. The new covenant isn't just outward conformity, it's heart change. But notice that the basis of this covenant, notice the third thing, it takes that which was conditional and it replaces it with the unconditional. It changes that which was conditional and it replaces it. Notice that it was contingent, the old covenant, on the people's response. Now, after the 613 laws are told to the people of Israel, in Deuteronomy 28, he finishes the Torah by saying, all right, you've got the laws, If, now that's an important word because we're going to read the scripture and you're going to see the word if. If you do everything that I tell you, you will be blessed. But if you don't do what I say, you will be cursed. And he lays, lays it out in Deuteronomy 28. Notice what he says. He says the following. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands, all of the law I give you, the Lord will set you high above all the nations. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. There's a catch. There was a caveat. There was a proviso. All these legal terms that say it will only happen if you Live out your end of the bargain. For the Badals, today is a very important day. Our second son, Joshua, has got his driving permits. Okay? So when you leave church, get out. No fellowship. Get out. Okay? We're going to need the road to ourselves. Now, in talking with Josh, there's a contract. And parents, you know what I'm talking about. The contract is, the the sweet spot you want to get into is the driver's license, right? You want to be able to listen to your own music, drive without mom and dad and all of that. 
Josh has got less than a year under this contract where he needs to do all of these different things, do it well, and then, and by the way, only then will he be able to be blessed with a driver's license. One of the things yesterday, because it was a new day that dawned for us yesterday when he got the, light, or the permit, was that his older brother and him were going to play basketball. And it dawned on me that there might be a temptation of the older to say, well, I'll be your driving instructor. And I had to say, no. Okay, because if I see that, you both are dead. Okay, that's how under the new covenant you bring back the old covenant. Okay, all right. There's going to be a stoning that's going to take place. There's conditions. There are requirements. The people of Israel, and you look at Old Testament history, and the people of Israel, they didn't do their end of the bargain. And the Bible says, the text tells us, I showed no concern for them. They were left out. They didn't get the blessing that they could have had. They didn't get it, not because God wasn't faithful, but because they were unfaithful. Here's the crazy thing about the new covenant, brothers and sisters. Never forget this. It has nothing to do with you and me. Jesus saved us and demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners. There was no ifs, there were no ands, there were no buts to the gospel call of Jesus. He says, come all who are weary, and I will give you rest. And so what happens when I sin? He saves you. What happens when I fall? He picks you up. What happens when this takes place? He takes care of you. And instead of saying, I'll have no concern for them, you know what he says? I will never leave you or forsake you. He says, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And so take heart, take solace, find peace in this truth that you cannot be separated no matter what you do from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That is the new covenant. Finally, we see that it takes away the out, that which is outgoing and replaces it with something that's ongoing. Notice verse 13. For I will be, uh, I'm sorry, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant was on its last leg. Now again, I'm going to bring my children into this for a moment, and I think this is helpful. So we've got Josh, 15, in a new journey for driving. Now I've got an 18-year-old, Noah. Noah is six months away from heading off to college. And we were having a conversation yesterday, and the conversation was, Noah, we're in this phase where I've got to stop being a dad to a little kid, and i got to move to being a dad of an adult. That's hard to do, parents, amen? And so we had this conversation, and I was so appreciative of Noah because he asked questions about it and all of that. Because I said, no, I can't treat you like a little kid anymore. You're 18 years of age. You're, you're an adult. And so what's going to start happening over really probably the next three or four years is dad's and mom's oversight is going to become less and less. The rules are going to become less and less. And you are going to enter into your own autonomy. You're going to make your own decisions and all of that. My fathering 
is becoming more and more obsolete. Now it's going to change, right? The relationship is going to change where mom and dad, and this is important parents, so I'm not just telling you this is how we do it. This is what all parents should be doing. At some point you stop being over your kids and you start what? Walking alongside your kids. Now this is really important because what God did in the old laws, he stood over the people of God. In Jesus, this is why Philippians 2 is so awesome, that he humbled himself and put on flesh and made his dwelling among us, as John tells us in John 1. And he humiliated himself by being found in human nature. What Jesus did without giving up any of his authority or majesty is he went from being over us to walking alongside of us. And he modeled for us what it was to be a perfect human. And he became, as the writer of Hebrews says, our brother. And so he walks alongside us, and now we're in this relationship, not top down anymore, but side to side. And that's why the hymn writer says, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. That's not an overbearing God with rules and regulations. That is a loving and merciful friend who comes alongside of us and we are able to say with all our heart and mind, oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong because I know some will say, he's still God. Yes, he is. But that's the great way that God reveals himself in Jesus that he's with us. So what's happening The old way of God relating to his people is growing obsolete. Now, how would that be? Two things. One's a historical one, and that is the book of Hebrews was written somewhere in the 60s of the first century, A.D. 60 to some say maybe as late as 65 or A.D. 66. You say, why does that matter? Because in A.D. 70... Rome, after dealing with all of the uprisings and all of the issues that Israel would bring, Rome says once and for all, we're done with all your rebellion, Israelites, and they come in and they destroy Jerusalem. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 25, where one stone is not left on top of another stone, and what is destroyed is the temple. And with the temple, all the worship, all the presence of God, all the sacrifice, All of that is gone. For the last 1900 and some odd years, there has been no sacrifice for sin under the Old Testament law. So when we read that it's becoming obsolete, the writer of Hebrews is prophesying something that's going to happen within the decade. It's going to become obsolete. You're not going to be able to do this anymore. But even more important than that, you don't need to shed the blood of animals when Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary shed blood once and for all. And so it's become obsolete. Now, what do we do with all this? I've got just a couple moments to finish this up. What do we do with all this? We are Gentiles. We're not Jews. We don't live under the 613 rules. What are we to do with this? Notice this. The new covenant is all about a relationship involving communion with Jesus Christ. And so if you are a Christ follower and you're under this new covenant, what this should cause you and I to do is to fall in love with Jesus all the more. Think of how life would be 
if it was just all of these rules and regulations, most of them we're never going to be able to fulfill, always knowing that we never get ahead in our spiritual life. Not so with Jesus. Jesus once and for all took care of our sins, and now the only thing we have to worry about is not being righteous, but having an ongoing relationship of communion with God. That's why on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant which is in my blood. Drink this often. And as you do, you proclaim my death until I come. Every time we come around the communion table and drink that juice, we are saying, we are recipients of this new covenant that allows us each and every day to be in communion with Jesus. Now let me stop there. Maybe someone today has never entered into that relationship. You don't have to fix yourself to come to Jesus. Jesus says, just come as you are. And so maybe today you're like, I don't know what this new covenant relationship is. I don't know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. You'd say to Jesus in a simple prayer, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need your grace. Come and commune with me. It's not the words, but it's the heart that says, Jesus, apart from you, I can't do it. And Jesus says he'll save you and he'll change you and he'll remember your sins no more. It's about communion. But how do we show this new covenant to the world? Notice this new covenant is reflected through the great commandment. So we had the old way, 613 laws, live them, obey them, or else. The new covenant doesn't give us a list of do's and don'ts. It says one thing. Listen very carefully. Love. Romans 13, Paul says that the, the uh, fulfillment of the law is love. Well, who are we to love? What are we to love? Jesus said to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. One. And second, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we're called to love our God with all of who we are. So let me ask you this morning, are you loving God with all of your being? If not, have you allowed this great new covenant to fall on your deaf ears and, and, and stony heart? Repent of it and say, Lord, I wanna live this out, but how do we do that? We show the world, listen church, we show the world we are followers of Jesus Christ by loving our neighbors. But they don't like the things I like, love them. They don't live the way I do, love them. We argue back and forth, love them. They're not followers of Jesus, love them. They're antithetical to the things of Jesus, love them. They're enemies of Jesus and mine, love them. Love, love, love. Now, the Bible's clear. We speak the truth in love. We speak the gospel in love. But our hearts should be reflecting that because we've experienced the love of God in Christ Jesus in this new covenant, that we would go about in our lives, whether at work or at play, by loving the Lord God and our neighbors as ourselves. You know what Jesus says? All of the law and all of the prophets hinge on those two commands. So listen, church, we went from 613 rules and regulations 
to two. And as Gentiles, we think that the Israelite people were a stiff-necked, rebellious people. They struggled with 613. Can we just agree? We struggle with two. And so we've got some work to do. Because out of our response, God is calling us to love. That's the new covenant. That's why it's better than the old. And that's why we should be telling the world about it. Because it is so much better than what it was before.